Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Hello, everyone. My name is Haley Elizabeth, and if you don't know who I am, this is my true crime podcast where once a week I sit down and I talk about all things true crime, ranging from murders, disappearances, cults, all the way to the biggest drug bust in history, the biggest bank ice in history, all things true crime. So if you're interested in any of that, you can subscribe to the YouTube channel to watch the visual version every Wednesday, or you can head over to Spotify, Apple, wherever you can find podcasts every Tuesday for the audio version. Now, for today's case, we are going to be talking about the case of Brittany Kilgore. Now, there is a lot to get through, so we're just going to hop right into it. This story takes place in Fallbrook, California, which is a pretty decent-sized town with a population of around 30,000 people. It's about an hour away north from San Diego. In Fallbrook lived Corey and Brittany Kilgore. The couple originally lived in Rolla, Missouri, but Corey had actually joined the Marines, and the couple decided to move on base in Fallbrook. A little bit of backstory about Brittany Kilgore. Brittany Kilgore, who her maiden name was Brittany Rest, she grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, and she was said to be a very good kid growing up. She didn't really go out and drink and party as much. She never smoked. She never drank. She went to church every Sunday. She got good grades. She was just a very nice and sweet and well-mannered girl. She was the type of girl that always played by the rules. She was just the type of girl that everyone trusted. She was extremely loyal to all of her friends and family. She was just overall such a sweet girl. And so one day when she was at church, there was a man by the name of Corey Kilgore who took interest in Brittany. It was said that Brittany and Corey, they were both 18 at the time, but when they met each other, they immediately hit it off. As soon as they started talking, it kind of felt like they had known each other for a long time time already and they actually planned on spending the rest of their life together even though they were so young and a couple months after dating that is when the couple actually got married. After they got married, that's when the both of them had graduated high school and Corey was going off to the Marines, but Brittany and Corey did not want to do long distance, and so what they did instead was move out to Fallbrook, California, specifically to Camp Pendleton, to live with each other full-time and live on base so that they didn't have to do long distance or a lot of traveling back and forth. Now, for context, at this point, the couple is both 19 
years old and they've known each other for less than a year. As I said, they've been dating for a couple months and then got married, but surprisingly, knowing someone for less than a year and then making the quick decision to spend the rest of your life with this person and then move across the country at 19 years old is a situation that could only go right in movies because in real life, this is a bad idea. You don't really know a person after only a couple of months. You need a long time to observe the person, see how they interact with themselves, with their surroundings, with their friends, with their family, and it takes a while to really, you know, commit to someone. But later down the road, that is when the couple's relationship started to go downhill. They started arguing all the time. They were bickering. Brittany, she was 22 years old and she, you know, saw all of her friends back home going out and partying and having fun and she just felt like she never got to live that life when she was a teenager and she sort of felt like she was missing out. The couple had dedicated themselves to such a mature and settled down life at such a young age, they weren't able to really experience life together. And so because of this and also because of Corey being out all the time because he was in the Marines, this left Brittany a lot of time to just be by herself in a brand new state. And at this point, both of them were 22 years old, so they were three years into this marriage. And so one day while Corey was stationed in Afghanistan, that is when Brittany sent and filed divorce papers. She then booked a flight on April 17th, 2012 to fly back home to Missouri and bring all of her things with her so that she would be gone and packed by the time that Corey gets back to the house. But unfortunately, on April 13th, that would be the last time that anyone had ever heard from Brittany. The days leading up to her flight on April 17th, the family tried contacting Brittany but got no response until one day they called her phone and they actually got a call back. But unfortunately, the person on the phone was not Brittany. It was actually a stranger. This stranger said that he was just walking along the road and he found this phone and so he unlocked the phone and just clicked on the most recently called person who was Brittany's mother. He just called her mother and said, hey, I found this phone. I have no clue who it belongs to. And so that is when Brittany's mom directs him to send it to the police. The police arrive and when they get there, that is when they confirm that this phone is the phone of Brittany Colger. And Brittany's phone was actually found not in Fallbrook, but about an hour away from Fallbrook, closer to San Diego. So when they found Brittany's phone, that is when Brittany's family knew that there was something extremely wrong about this. Brittany isn't the type of person to just go days without talking to her family. As I said, Brittany was very mature. She was very organized. She always responded to her parents every time they called her or texted her. And so for her phone to just be lost in the city and not to respond to anyone for days, this was extremely odd. And so when this phone was found, that is when the police opened up a missing persons investigation to find Brittany. 
The police tried to put pieces together and found that Brittany was actually supposed to be going on a dinner cruise with another Marine by the name of Luis Perez. And Luis Perez would actually be the last person to see Brittany alive. Luis Perez was brought into questioning and the first time he was brought into questioning, he said that they were supposed to go on a dinner date on this cruise, but they unfortunately ended up showing up late and the cruise had left. And so Luis basically just dropped off Brittany at the front and said, wait right here, I'm just gonna go and park the car real quick. But then when he came back to the front, that's when Brittany was gone. But the odd thing about this is that Lewis didn't even call or text Brittany's phone or even ask around to ask like if anyone had seen her. He just kind of thought that maybe she was mad because they had shown up late to the cruise and maybe just stormed off or maybe she just met someone else in the five minutes that he was gone parking. So instead of trying to look for her or even try to contact her at all, he simply just left and went home. And the police noticed that from Luis's body language and the way that he's telling the story, there's just something that he's not telling them and they can tell. And so they try to bring up the pressure just a little bit more. A little bit of backstory on Luis Perez. Luis Perez was a 45-year-old staff sergeant in the Marines and was in the Marines for about 16 years as of the year of 2012. He at the time was he at the time was also living on the same base as Corey and Brittany, but Lewis actually had a whole wife and kid. He lived on the base with his wife and his 13-year-old daughter, and Lewis wasn't really friends with the Colgors. They were just kind of acquaintances, you know. He would see Corey and Brittany, and they would have the casual conversation, but when Lewis is telling the police, like, his relationship with Corey and Brittany, the police are still confused as to how Brittany and Lewis even got to talking in the first place. Police actually interview Lewis's ex-girlfriend and his ex-girlfriend would say that Lewis was a terrible partner. He would often cheat around with other women and his wife knew that Lewis would cheat around, but she didn't really know the extent of Lewis's cheating, which was a crazy extent that I'm about to explain to you right now. So Lewis was really into role-playing and BDS which there isn't anything bad with either of that, just as long as both parties are having fun and consenting. But as for Lewis, he was the kind of person that didn't take no for an answer, and he just didn't know when to stop. And so when police had confiscated Lewis's items for further investigating, they found a video, multiple videos, on Lewis's computer where he would make X-rated BDSM content, and he went by the name I. Ivan. In one of these X-rated home videos, it was shown Lewis beating a girl over and over with this girl begging Lewis to stop beating her, but he continues until later on the girl falls unconscious and he continues to still beat her after she is unconscious. Now, as far as the woman in the video, no one really knows who this woman is and if they do know, her name is not released to the public. And so, 
although Lewis had his wife and his daughter, he also had a girlfriend named Dorothy Marjolino. And again, his wife and kid had no clue about this other life that Lewis was living. He was taking girls on dates. He had a whole girlfriend. He also had another house that his girlfriend Dorothy and their sex slave Jessica also lived in. As I said, there is a lot to unpack here. So basically, Lewis goes on to say that he has a whole nother house and this house is his sex master dungeon. And this is the dungeon that he would make all of his home tapes in. And it's also the home where his girlfriend Dorothy and him and Dorothy's sex slave Jessica Lopez also lived in. So the police go to Dorothy and Jessica's home to try to search around and when they did, all they found was a lot of BDSM things. They found that Jessica Lopez had actually been living and sleeping in their sex dungeon closet. Apparently, the couple, Dorothy and Lewis, had met Jessica through a mutual friend and had done a Fifty Shades of Grey thing with Jessica, where Jessica signed a contract to be their slave and do whatever they say. Now, this had actually been going on for a while, and even though Lewis would go to the house on weekends or sometimes during the week to sort of play pretend this other life of his, as for Jessica and Dorothy, this was their full-time lifestyle. Jessica was in the contract required to wear a dog collar 24-7. She slept in the closet in the basement, and for some reason, Brittany was actually friends with Dorothy and had even come over to Dorothy's house a couple of times just to hang out with her and Jessica. And one time when Brittany was at the house with Dorothy and Jessica is when Lewis had actually came over. And that's when Lewis and Brittany had met for the very first time. Lewis grew a liking to Brittany because Brittany was also married to a Marine, so she just knew a lot about the Army and the Marine and being a Marine wife. Lewis then grew a very big liking to Brittany. He thought that she was funny, she was smart, she was beautiful, and she was also a girl who always played by the rules. She never really liked going out of her comfort zone too much, and Lewis weirdly liked this. But Dorothy actually recognized that Lewis was taking a better liking in Brittany than her and Dorothy grew extremely jealous and did not like Brittany and would even call her multiple times quote the disease or quote the herpes. Police were actually in possession now of Brittany's phone because the stranger had found the phone in San Diego and they were also in possession of Lewis's phone. So they tried to track the location of both phones on the night of April 13th the the night that Brittany went missing and they found that neither of their phones had actually left Fallbrook and neither of them had went to San Diego that night. They found that instead of going to this dinner cruise in downtown San Diego, the couple actually went to Dorothy and Jessica's house. They found that Brittany's phone had actually stayed at the home for a couple of days before her location moving to a random street in downtown San Diego. So how did Brittany and Lewis even go on this date in the first place? Lewis knew about the divorce that Brittany was going through with Corey, and so Lewis had actually gone over to Brittany's house 
house in order to help her pack up all of her things and move them into trucks. And so during this moving process, that's when Lewis had asked Brittany out on a date. And Brittany at first declined because she's like, are you joking? Like, I'm technically not even out of my marriage yet. We've been dating since we were 18 years old. Like, it's been four years. I don't really think I'm ready to go on dates yet. But as I said earlier, Lewis is the kind of guy that does not take no for an answer, unfortunately. So Lewis tries it again. And he says that, okay, I'll help you pack up all your stuff. And in return, you come with me on a dinner cruise. And again, Brittany says no. And so Lewis asks for a third time and says, okay, well, I'll do you even better. I'll not only help you pack up all your stuff today, but tomorrow morning, I'll bring over five of my biggest marine friends and all of us will help you move all of your stuff into the moving truck so you don't have to pay for movers. And so now this was an offer Brittany liked because she did have a lot of stuff at their house and she would love to, you know, save money on not paying for movers. And so at this point, Brittany was like, okay, I'll go on a date with you. But after agreeing to this, Brittany immediately felt very guilty for, you know, going on a date with Louie. And she even texted Dorothy because although Dorothy doesn't really like Brittany, Brittany had a lot of respect for Dorothy and she was still her friend. And so she texted Dorothy and said, hey, I know you guys have like a polyamorous, like open relationship thing, but I just wanted to ask you if it was okay if I go on a date with Louie. Like he just asked me out to this dinner cruise and I'm not really sure about it. But Dorothy, Dorothy says, go ahead. I do not care. Like his business is his business. If you want to go on this date, that's completely up to you. I think you should do it. And so Brittany felt a little bit better about going on the date, but not fully because she also confided in other friends in the days leading up to the date saying that she didn't really know what it was, but she just had this really bad feeling about the date and that she wasn't supposed to go on this date. But even when confiding in her other friends. Her other friends was just saying, you know, go have fun. You're going to be on a cruise ship eating dinner for free. This guy wants to take you out to dinner to downtown San Diego. Like even if the date is a bust, at least you got to have a fun experience. And so Brittany ends up going on the date. And from security footage that you can see like from outside people's homes, you see Brittany getting into Luis's car and drive off. But 10 minutes into to the car ride. That is when Brittany sends off a text to her best friend at 7.50 p.m. saying, quote, help. 12 minutes later, her friend texts Brittany and says, quote, are you okay? And then after that, she again says, quote, Brittany, are you okay? I am freaking out here. This friend also tried to call Brittany multiple times, but there was no answer until later on that night, the friend got a text back from Brittany's phone, basically saying that she was sorry, but she was out having a great time. She was drinking, but she wasn't really on her phone that much. And just sorry to scare her. 
And that text on April 13th would be the last text that was ever sent on Brittany's phone. The 17th of April, the day that Brittany was supposed to be home, that day came and went and Brittany never went home. When Lewis was confronted about the text message that Brittany had sent off to her friend, Lewis just said that he had no clue why Brittany would send the words help, maybe as a joke or something. And he also said that if Brittany said she was out drinking, it definitely wasn't with him because he left as soon as he thought that Brittany had left him. And so with this very confusing story, there's just a lot to unpack. And so they're hoping that maybe Lewis has some items that could give them a little bit more insight on what actually happened to Brittany. And so they end up going through Lewis's phone, his car, his laptop. They got a warrant to search Lewis Lewis's car and in his car just laying out in the back seat is a stolen AR-15 and they knew it was stolen because the serial number on the gun had been reported stolen days before Brittany was found missing. So that's when the police had arrested Lewis for the stolen AR-15 but now that they had him arrested they did have some more time to keep him and question him for longer. On top of the gun that was found in the trunk they also found bloody bags as well as bloody gloves and once tested all of that blood came back to be Brittany's blood. They also found a stun gun with both Lewis's and Brittany's DNA on it. It's believed that the stun gun was actually used on Brittany but what happened when they got to Dorothy's house they are not really sure. So the police decide okay we know that something happened at Dorothy and Jessica's house we're going to go over to the home to get some more evidence on what happened. But when they went to the home, they found that Jessica and Dorothy had actually fled the scene and neither of them were home. They tried to contact their workplaces to get their personal phone numbers. They called their phones, text their phones, but no answer from Dorothy and Jessica. They also spoke to their neighbors, but their neighbors said that they were nowhere to be seen. The police ended up not finding the either of them until the next day at the Ramadan in hotel, police actually got a sighting of either Brittany or Jessica staying in one of the rooms. The police then went into the room and found that it was actually Jessica, but Jessica was unfortunately laying on the bed, bleeding all over, and the police see that she had cut herself all over her body in an attempt of what looked like suicide, but yet she didn't cut her wrists. She only cut her legs, her arms, uh, small little incisions at her throat, and in the bathroom there was a note attached to a hanger that said, quote, pigs read this. Underneath the note was a eight-page letter detailing the final moments of Brittany's life. Now, the full eight pages you can find online, but instead of reading you all of the eight pages, I'm just going to give you the breakdown of what it says. Basically, Brittany was under the impression that she was going on a nice dinner cruise, but about 10 minutes into the ride, she was told that she was going to Dorothy's instead. When she said that she didn't want to go she rather go home, Luis refused to take her home and that's when she had texted her friend, quote, help. 
After this, she was taken to Dorothy's house where she put up a fight trying to leave and that is when Lewis had actually used the stun gun on her to keep her still. It was at this moment where Lewis, Jessica, and Dorothy had all contributed into the torture of Brittany using all of their BDSM equipment on her, hurting Brittany, and Brittany actually attempted to run away multiple times fighting for her life, but eventually in the note it says that Jessica had actually choked Brittany and eventually choked her to death. After they knew Brittany was dead, the three of them drove to Lake Skinnier, which was about a lake 20 minutes away from the house, and that's where they dumped her body. The police went to Lake Skinnier and found the body of 22-year-old Brittany Kilgore. When the police found Brittany's body, they brought her body in for an autopsy and they found that Brittany had indeed been tortured by BDSM equipment and her cause of death was indeed being strangled to death. She had ligature marks around her neck, bruises on her thighs, her legs, and her neck. She also had defensive wounds all over over her body and she also weirdly had huge deep incisions at the joints of her body and it looked as if someone had tried to cut up her body but then gave up halfway. On the night of April 13th when Brittany went missing it was actually Jessica's birthday and it was theorized that Brittany was possibly a present to Jessica. Jessica, Dorothy, and Lewis were very into the lifestyle of BDSM and they would do it very often, but when you do something so routinely, so often, every day, it's very easy to get bored of something, and so this led to the thruple pushing the boundaries more and more until they decided that they were going to murder someone. Jessica, as I said, when she was found with all of these cuts all over her body, she was immediately taken to the hospital, but was discharged that same exact day, and although they had Jessica in custody, Dorothy was still out there. So they checked the security footage, so they checked the security footage at the hotel and found that the police had actually just missed Dorothy because 10 minutes before police arrive is when Dorothy was seen leaving the hotel. And it is assumed that since Dorothy had left just 10 minutes before police arrived, Jessica was probably already cut up and the note was written before Dorothy had left. And so with everything presented, they believed that Dorothy was probably the ringleader of this whole operation. I mean, she was the one who hated Brittany, and so it would make sense why she would gift Brittany to Jessica for her birthday. And also, Dorothy was very, very quick to flee the scene while leaving Jessica there defenseless and taking the blame for everything. When they found Jessica, that is when they were able to gain access to the actual home, and when they went into the home for a further investigation, they found notes and signs and instructions all over the house and from Jessica's statement it says that it was put there by Dorothy and what I mean by instructions is that over the toilet paper roll there was a note that read quote under not over as if to instruct everyone that the toilet paper must be pointed under not over like in a specific position. There was also a bunch of instructions over all of the sinks in the home on how to clean it after every time you use it. There was cabinets and drawers that said do not open without permission. It was basically 
as if Dorothy was in control of everything that went on in the house. And Lewis would also tell police that Dorothy was the more dominant one in the thruple, and they said that she called the shots and she tended to get whatever she wanted. And so when the police are hearing all of this, that is when they start shifting their blame over onto Dorothy rather than Jessica. They knew that Dorothy hated Brittany. If Dorothy had killed Brittany herself, and since Jessica will do anything Dorothy says, it's believed that Dorothy had actually forced Jessica to not only cut herself up, but also write a note taking all of the blame for everything. And as I said, Jessica would do anything for Dorothy. So it's not that outrageous to think that she would do something like this. So now that they're getting all of this information about Dorothy, there is a huge manhunt to find Dorothy and try to figure out what's going on. They end up calling Dorothy's phone multiple times until one of these times Dorothy actually picks up and when she picks up, the police are able to track her location and find her somewhere in Virginia. On the phone conversation, it only lasted about a minute where the police are basically just asking Dorothy on the night of April 13th, was Brittany at your home? But Dorothy just refuses to come back to California. She says that she can't be forced to go there because they have nothing on her. They have no evidence. And she continuously tells the police that Brittany was never at her house on the night of April 13th to her memory. After this, Dorothy was on the run and she was actually very good about keeping a low profile until a couple weeks later, she was found at a hotel back home in San Diego. All three of them were arrested on the charges of conspiracy to kidnap and conspiracy to murder. Jessica, Lewis, and Dorothy were all given the same trial and the trial is honestly just as confusing as the actual story. All three of them, yet they were all pleading not guilty, were basically just pointing the finger at one another. Dorothy was saying that it was all Jessica's idea and it was for Jessica's birthday, but then Jessica says that it was actually all Lewis and Lewis was the one that used the stun gun, meaning that he wanted to cause harm to Brittany. But then Lewis says that Dorothy was actually the ringleader and Dorothy was the one who wanted Brittany at the house that night and that he just followed her rules. So with all of this finger pointing and them just in one big circle playing the blame game, it was really, really hard to try to figure out what exactly happened. And it also didn't help that all three of them were pleading not guilty, meaning that it was even harder to try to get a clear story when they are just trying to deflect all blame off of themselves. If all of them are at trial for murder, all three of them were involved in the murder of Brittany. And it also is very obvious that Brittany's phone was found through tracking her location that she was indeed at Dorothy and Jessica's house at the night of April 13th. Since she was brought to that house by Lewis, Lewis had a part in whatever happened and Jessica and Dorothy lived there, meaning they also had a part in whatever happened. The trial began three years later in 2015 and even at the trial, no one really knew exactly what happened they knew all of them played a role but wasn't really sure about what exact role all three of them played. The defense team tried to argue that Jessica did kill Brittany but that Lewis and Dorothy left the house when it happened but Jessica tried to argue for herself and said no it was not all her because Lewis and Dorothy had actually helped in the torture of Brittany and the disposal of Brittany's body. But 
then on the other side of things, Dorothy was saying that she wasn't the dominant one. It was more Lewis. Lewis was the dominant one of their thruple, while Dorothy was the submissive wife and Jessica was their slave by contract. The defense team also tried to argue that since there was no skin cells or fingerprints, etc. found in the home, that Brittany wasn't even there in the first place. Now, this I find really, really odd. The fact that there was no skin cells, no fingerprints that pointed Brittany to the actual home. Because even if Brittany's phone was there, Brittany's phone has DNA on it. And that DNA could be transferred to other things. And Brittany has been to the home multiple times before. So her DNA would be on at least something. Yet the defense team was arguing that they found nothing, which is very hard to believe. The prosecutors try to argue that they believe Jessica was coerced into giving that false confession, the eight-page letter, in order to protect her quote-unquote masters. But although no matter how confusing and how warped this story can easily get, at the end of the day, they knew that Brittany was murdered. They see it from the disposal of her body just being thrown in a lake. They see the defensive wounds on her body that she was attacked. They see that she was attempted at being cut up before going into the lake, meaning that whoever did this knew that Brittany was dead and knew that they needed to dispose of her body, meaning that this was not an accident. This was premeditated. They also found bloody gloves and bloody towels in the back of Lewis's car, meaning that Lewis had to have come in contact with Brittany's blood at some point. And how would he even come in contact with Brittany's blood if it wasn't through her murder? So with all of these factors combined, in the end, all three of them were charged with murder, torture, conspiracy to commit kidnapping, kidnapping, and attempted sexual battery. All three of them got a life sentence without possibility of parole, and Lewis actually had a chance to speak up to the court and Brittany's family, but when you listen to his statement, he not once says sorry to Brittany's family for the loss of their daughter. He doesn't say sorry for what he did. He doesn't even say sorry to his wife and his daughter for all of the harm that he had just caused. All he says is that he forgives them. He says that he forgives all of the people who have wronged him and all of the people who have not stood by his side. He forgives them. That to me is so wild because who is he forgiving? If anything, he should be saying sorry, right? There is nothing to be forgiven to him about. He did the unforgivable. And although all three of them are locked up without possibility of parole, even to this day, we do not know what exactly happened that night of the murder. All we know is that all we know is that Brittany put up a fight and then she was stunned with a stun gun at some point. And when she was stunned with that stun gun, that is when they began the torture on her and that led to her being strangled to death and even her body attempted at being chopped up. As far as the aftermath of everything, as far as Jessica and Louie, they've been pretty quiet to the media. They haven't really said much. They're mostly just living out their life sentence in prison. While 
while Dorothy, Dorothy's actually been quite busy in prison. Dorothy became a writer and wrote a poetry book by the name, quote, My Inside Voice by Dorothy Margellano, which you can actually get on Amazon. And basically, it's a poetry book. And the description of her poetry book from Amazon goes, quote, the poems, letters, and short stories will give you an insight on the journey of myself and thousands of others that include experiencing birth, death, illness, joy, and despair while locked away from family and friends. The voice of this book echoes the voices of thousands of others who share these same experiences. The emotion is raw as I open up. Be prepared to laugh, cry, be outraged, motivated, and on occasion, dot, 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 hopeful. I don't know what coerced this woman to become like Lana Del Rey when she entered prison, but she's trying to like start up this very disheveled and misunderstood act and oh life in prison behind bars it's so terrible you guys wouldn't even know. But basically when you read the book, which I don't suggest buying it obviously, but when you read like the sample that they give you on Amazon, basically all it is is just her saying, guys, prison sucks. Let me tell you all about it and how hard it is to be in prison. Clearly, she has not learned anything from her actions because all she's saying in the book is poor me, poor me and giving absolutely no sympathy for her actions. And even if she were to not know what happened to Britney, which is quite impossible, she doesn't even show sympathy for Britney's family who had just lost their daughter. Like, wouldn't you have some sort of sympathy for someone who just lost their daughter or try all in your power to get this family justice. But no, the entire book is just her talking about how she's in prison and how terrible it is in prison. But not once does she mention the crime that she committed, which was literally murdering an innocent woman out of jealousy and pride. As I said, I don't want you to buy the book, but I am going to read you some poetry that she she has written in this book because it's actually unbelievable. This poem is called, quote, Prison Laughter. Prison laughter is hard to hear. It is usually at the expense of others. I hear laughter and I cringe with dread. Laughter used to be associated with joy. Everyone joined in the pleasurable moments. Now I look around for the targeted victim, fearing that it most likely may be me again. Laughter in prison is rarely without a victim. So I'm assuming like she's getting made fun of in prison. So I, I don't really know what that's about. This other poem, which is the most tone deaf thing I've ever read in my life. Mind you, she murdered an innocent woman. This poem is called, quote, I had a life. I had a perfectly imperfect family once, but I didn't really appreciate them. I had friends that saw the real me once, but I didn't really see them enough. I had a future full of opportunity once, but I didn't take the open doors. I had a home that was built on love once, but I didn't really live in that love. I learned too late I had a life, and by then it was too late for it was gone. And then this last poem that I'm going to read you, which is probably the craziest one yet, and it's called, quote, My Cell. My cell is where the state says I am assigned. My cell is where I seek sanctuary from prison. My cell is where I lay my head to sleep at night. 
My cell is where I cry out to my God and pray. My cell is where I read my messages from home. My cell is where I mourn all deaths and losses. My cell is where I celebrate life's little victories. My cell is where I relive my mistakes and failures. My cell is where I hang memories to remember. My cell is where I do my best to forget the past. My cell is where the state says I live until I die. My cell is more than a cell. It's my home. Dot, dot, dot. For now. As if she's ever gonna get released. <laughs> so yeah, those are just some poems that she has written. As you can see, she gives absolutely no sympathy to anyone but herself and only cares about how she's doing and how prison sucks for her and doesn't even, you know, consider how maybe Britney's family is feeling now that they have lost their 22-year-old daughter. Like, she was so young with so much more life left to live. As for Dorothy, she completely disregards that and she feels as if she is the victim in this situation. Dorothy not only wrote poetry, but she also wrote essays, letters, and articles and is even a contributing writer at the Prison Journalism Project to basically complain in articles how prison sucks and how they need better treatment. And at one point, Dorothy had even tried to get into the dating scene because I'm assuming she kind of missed her thruple days and she attempted at getting into a pen pal website and her description on her profile is a picture of her and right next to it it says quote I am a 47-year-old journalist and an author in prison. I am seeking interesting and open-minded people to have conversations with and get to know. My published works and books are a great way to get to know me. I am a textbook Gemini, <laughs> yeah, we know, and I've learned to embrace all sides of myself. In the past, I was a preacher's kid, and now I'm a prisoner. Also, side note, she's not just a prisoner, she's also a murderer, yet that is nowhere to be seen in this description continuing. She says, in the past, I was a corporate trainer slash project manager for a Fortune 400 tech company, and now I am an inmate clerk making 11 cents an hour. I am not ashamed of the past or the present. It is simply parts of me. I love people, but hate to be around them. I love retail therapy, but I'm not materialistic. In quotes, I love to share. I love the law, but hate how it's used. I love God, but hate how he is used. I believe in the criminal justice system, but believe that it is broken. If you would like to email me, go to www.gettingout.com and create an account. I'm looking forward to hearing from you. She's apparently trying to look for love, even in prison, and even to this day, as of 2023, she is still manipulating her side of the story to make it look like she's the victim, the same way that she manipulated Jessica into to taking the fall for her. She knows that she is to blame for the murder of Brittany because if she felt that she was completely innocent, why did she flee off to Virginia the day after Lewis was brought into questioning by the police? Why did she leave Jessica in the hotel room 10 minutes before the police had showed up, leaving Jessica with this very long eight-page note, an eight-page note that I don't think you could just write in 10 minutes? It just makes no sense. Dorothy was definitely involved 
involved and if she felt like she was innocent she wouldn't have fled the way that she did but yeah that is the end of today's case if you found this case interesting make sure to give it a thumbs up and subscribe if you're on youtube or if you're on spotify apple wherever you can find podcasts make sure to rate it five stars because that really helps me out a lot i hope you guys have a wonderful rest of your day make sure to be safe out there and as always i love you i love you i love you and i will see you guys next week bye